Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Joan Stewart, President Emerita of Hamilton College. As a trustee and former fellow of the center, I'm pleased to serve as your host for this episode. When we think about political campaigns, we're likely to envisage rallies with crowds chanting slogans or airways filled with seemingly endless political ads. But what did political campaigning look like in a time before heads of state were elected? And was campaigning even necessary when rulers typically inherited their power and their positions? Our guest today is Sonia Drimmer, a National Humanities Center fellow from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Her work invites us to consider how images and objects were used by those vying for the English throne in the turbulent era during the 15th century that is perhaps best known for the Wars of the Roses. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you so much for having me here. Sonia, when people recall the Wars of the Roses from their world history class or perhaps from one of Shakespeare's plays, they're likely to think of royal intrigue between the House of York and the House of Lancaster, or of the battles among the warring factions. But you're looking at a different aspect of that long and bloody conflict, one that took place, we might say, in the court of public opinion. Can you begin by giving us a quick refresher on the Wars of the Roses and tell us what your particular focus is? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the difficulties in this particular project is how complex the Wars of the Roses were and can seem to people who are familiar with it as this you know, mode of intrigue that you describe. But just to describe it in the simplest terms, it was, in fact, a conflict over who should sit on the throne of England that occurred generally the beginning date is 1455, the date of the Battle of St. Albans, and concluding in 1485 with Henry VII um, coming to the throne. And this conflict is between, yes, those two factions, the Lancastrians, represented by the dynasty of Henry IV, Henry V, and Henry VI, who had been on the throne from 1399, and uh, the Yorkists, who were headed by Richard, Duke of York, and eventually his son, Edward, who became Edward IV. But I think what is so important about this particular conflict is that it's not simply about or it did not simply involve royalty and nobility. It was about this larger, broader, newly formed public feeling that they had a role to play in this event and the role of kings and would-be kings in appealing to that public. Wonderful. Thank you, Sonia. This is such a fascinating project. Can you tell us how you became interested in it? Yeah, absolutely. It was a great moment. Back in 2009, I was living in England while working on my dissertation, which was devoted to uh, illustrated manuscripts, so handwritten books of English literature. And the manuscript that I focused my dissertation on was owned by Edward IV and his queen consort, Elizabeth Woodville. And it's a book of English poetry. But in order to contextualize it, I wanted to look at as many manuscripts that were owned by them and objects that were owned by them. So 2009, I'm in the British Library in London, and I called up this thing that I'd heard of. It's been written about 
Even some images have been reproduced, just little details selected by themselves to illustrate contemporary battles of the Wars of the Roses. But what no one had really discussed was actually what this object was and its physical nature. So the shelf mark is Harley Manuscript 7353, and I call it up. And what's brought to me is a five foot nine by two feet wide roll that contains a pictorial rosebush family tree of Edward IV. And on top of it are on the left scenes from the Old Testament, juxtaposed on the right with scenes from recent battles that were led by Edward IV. I mean, this was a bold and daring object, and I could barely wrap it up. And a huge object. (laughs) Yes. I mean, when when I talk about it in lectures, I stand in front of the crowd and I say, okay, I'm 5'4", I'm wearing heels, so I aspire to be 5'7", about what I am now in my heels. This is two inches taller than I am as I stand before you. Um, And so, you know, I had to write a dissertation. So I put it aside, sort of kept it in my head. Slowly, I transcribed all of the texts that are on this roll in addition to their pictures. And uh, it's only been over the last few years that I've really dug into that and objects that are like it, astounding ones. That's a wonderful origin story. Tell us about the other objects that you're studying. What kinds of objects are they? I I gather from reading a little bit about your work that they range from the funny to the inept to the gruesome. Uh, Tell us something about these objects. Yeah, that's a great way of describing them. As it stands, the book that I'm writing has four chapters, each one arranged according to a class of objects that I argue play a really important role in 15th century political political culture. And one of those groups are genealogical rolls. So these are long uh, rolls of parchment, so scrolls of parchment. Usually they're, they're in vertical orientation. Sometimes they unfurl horizontally. And they will prove the genealogical legitimacy of a given king, whether it's Henry VI, whether it's Edward IV. And there were other ones that were made for members of the nobility. So from the 15th century alone, there survive over 70 of these objects. So they're clearly not just owned by royals themselves. They're owned by nobility and perhaps even members of the lower of the class just under the nobility, the gentry. Another class of objects that I'm working on are known as livery badges. And and I like to compare them to campaign pins, but that's sort of um, a, a loose comparison. They could be luxurious or extremely cheap badges that people would wear on their clothing that contain the emblem, sort of the, you might think of the logo of a particular lord to whom they owed their allegiance. And that badge was the lord's own personal emblem. So if I were a member of the class of people, the affinity that supported uh, the Duke of Warwick, I would wear his emblem, his badge of a ragged staff. So that's one. And I compare them to coins and portraiture of kings on coins in that chapter. And then uh, another chapter looks at the presence of heraldry illustrating historical chronicles in the English language that were being written en masse at this period. Um, We've got lots and lots of surviving chronicles in English that are tracking the past of the English nation as well as contemporary events. And then finally, um, in a grim way, a gruesome way, I discuss the use of severed heads in this, at this time and how severed heads were posted and displayed in cities. And how did you find out about the severed heads? 
much of what I've been doing in addition to studying the objects themselves and the images themselves is reading chronicles, that these chronicles that I allude to, reading the actual accounts of these events as they were recorded at the time or shortly after. And all of these chronicles are just crowded with accounts of severed heads. And at some point I thought, well, wh- something's here. Why is this occurring? There are, I just read another chronicle, a short one, for 40 years between 1431 and 1471. I read it yesterday. Uh, and it's effectively a chronicle that's tracked through the beheadings. Are there images of the heads in these chronicles? Fantastic question. No. And I have struggled as an art historian to think about how to present this topic because I cannot show you a contemporary image of a severed head. But in these chronicle accounts, there is attention to the display of these severed heads. A lot of people like to imagine the Middle Ages, uh, and this is a vision that was inspired by the historian Johann Hausinger. Uh, the Middle Ages is people jostling before the scaffold. Yes, execution, kill him, kill her. We don't have many accounts like that from the period that I'm working on in England. Instead, what we hear of are people having been beheaded, extremely terse, or a description of how the severed head was displayed. So help me understand what the severed head might have had to do with political campaigning. What travels with these heads are stories about the people who were killed and Often the way that these heads are displayed will reflect on the insurrections they were trying to raise or the wrongdoing that they had committed. So one of the most famous examples is the example of Richard, Duke of York. He is the father of Edward, who eventually became Edward IV, the Yorkist king of England, in 1461. And uh, he was taken after battle and killed. And famously, atop his head was placed a paper crown, before his head was then displayed over a prominent gate entrance to the city of York. So this crown on top of his head was a mocking parody. It was a parody of his desire to sit on the throne of England, of his desire to become king. Uh, So what might this have said to prospective people who tried to unseat Henry VI, the Lancastrian at the time? And this is not the only instance in which a severed head has been curated, is one way I could put it, in order to express something about the person who has been murdered. And it's far more than just a warning. And something that redounds to the advantage of the contender who was the enemy of that person, presumably. Exactly. And one of the ways in which I I believe that these heads were seen as more than just the collateral of an execution is that many people begin participating in the practice of exhibiting these heads and doing things to them. So one example is after Owen Tudor is executed, There is an account in which a quote-unquote a mad woman took his head, which was uh, placed on a cross in the middle of a town, and she combed away his hair, she wiped the blood from his face, and she set about his face burning more than 100 candles. So for me, this is a suggestion that people are aware of the fact that these heads are communicating something and that she wanted to change the story, the script of what 
that severed head was intended to express. And there are other such instances. So to return to our subject of political campaigning and Mm -hmm. these objects as being fraught with some kind of political message, Mm -hmm. were the consumers, the people who envisioned these objects, were they aware of the political freight that they carried? Absolutely. I mean, I think for one, there was, if we can get back to other objects like genealogical roles, I think by virtue of their proliferation of the fact that these objects are desired by, yes, the people who can afford them, but they're not people who themselves are going to sit on the throne or even be members of the king's household. I think that to me communicates that they are interested in learning to speak a political language and are, in fact, participating in speaking in that language in a visual form. Sonia, you've mentioned scrolls, genealogical charts, chronicles of heraldry. You've mentioned livery badges and severed heads. One object that I don't think you've mentioned, except maybe in passing, is roses. Ah. (laughs) Can you tell us about the roses and the Wars of the Roses? Yes, this is um, almost certainly featured somewhere towards the very end of this book. Uh, So the idea that the Wars of the Roses had that name came about after. It is believed that the idea that the Yorkists uh, had a white rose that symbolized their house and that the Lancastrians had a red rose to symbolize their own house is a projection from Henry VII himself. So the Yorkists, we do believe they used white roses as one of their own badges, if you like. But the red rose as a Lancastrian emblem is probably a fabrication because when Henry VII married, so he descended from the Tudor line, when he married a Yorkist, so the daughter of Edward IV, he said that he was bringing together the two houses of Lancaster and York. And so he signified this by creating his own emblem of the Tudor rose, which combines the red and the white. pink? <laughs> it combines, you can see, it's it's usually, it's red petals and white petals oh, combined petals. together. I see. Yes. What are the challenges that you've encountered in this project? There are a lot of challenges, and I think the historians who have worked on this period have given me the language for describing one of these challenges, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase, not exactly quote, Christine Carpenter, a historian of this period, who has said that The 15th century in England is one of the most incoherent and baffling periods that historians have struggled to give a solid picture to, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here. Um, There is a welter of information. There are all of these chronicles in English. There's a proliferation of documents, So, and there's a proliferation of, of objects. I was reading last night about mints and money in medieval England because I'm working on coins as a form of portraiture. And while there are very few of the dies from which coins were were hammered out and, and struck in the earlier period, for the 14th and 15th century, there are over 300 of those coin dies that survive. So there's just this proliferation of stuff, which is great. But for me, of a natural completionist, I want to see it all. The other is that much of this material has not been examined by my fellow art historians. So I've found it very difficult 
to decide, you know, the sort of narrative or framework that I want to put this into, which is partly what I'm working on here while I'm at the National Humanities Center. How do I turn all of this into a coherent story? So first of all, it's the sheer numbers of the objects that you're dealing with. And then how do you make something coherent of them and explain what the political freight is of all these objects? When I think of 15th century art, and perhaps others are like me, I tend to think of religious art. So what you're doing is something very different. Yes, yes. And this is partly my mission as an art historian of the late medieval period. Uh, There is brilliant work out there. I've been schooled in the brilliant scholarship of medieval art historians who work on religious art and religious visions and the way in which vision itself was spiritually or religiously informed. The way you look at the world may have been through a religious lens in the Middle Ages. But there's a whole genre of objects, there's a whole flock of objects that can best be discussed within a different realm, a a non-religious realm, though, I mean, religion is is generally there, like my starting object I described to you that has images from the Old Testament on it. So, yeah, I am finding a way of thinking about non-devotional objects in this period, but not necessarily ones that are to do with the splendor of the courts. So the vast majority of the objects that I discuss in this book are not splendid. They're not glamorous. Uh, The livery badges I described, the ones that I'm working on, are cheap lead metal alloys. Um, They could be made, and to to make one takes only 20 seconds to pour that cheap lead into a a mold and have it dry. Um, And that's just one example. So... I'm finding a space, I'm I'm digging out or carving out a niche for discussing objects that are neither of the splendorous, magnificent court, nor of the church. So here we are in a period of civil war and instability where we have various contenders for the throne. And since there are various contenders, there's competition and the competition necessitates campaigning. And hence we have the production of a variety of of objects that you are looking at as one of the first ever to look at them and to take them seriously. Of all the surprising things you've seen, what is the most surprising discovery you've made in your research? Oh, so many things. Um, well, certainly that that role that I described at the beginning, the, the my my starting object. Another one is not a discovery of my own. The object has been known, but it has been little examined. And it's near us. It's in Philadelphia, so it's not in England. It's been called the coronation roll of Edward IV. Mm-hmm. It's a 15-foot-long parchment scroll, vertical, with an equestrian portrait, not lifelike, but an equestrian portrait of Edward IV himself at the top. And it runs for the length of 15 feet with his genealogy, with a proliferation of texts, you know, outlining his legitimacy and his uh, right to sit on the throne of England, filled with heraldry and mottos. And, And the question I have is, where was this shown? We have no textual description that says to us on what occasion this gloriously unwieldy, highly illustrated, textually loquacious object was shown, displayed, used, processed. 
I don't know. So these objects are still fraught with mystery. Absolutely. Yeah. And while I don't know if I can solve all of the mysteries, I think bringing them out in the open and showing that they were part of a lively conversation, public conversation about kingship, about governance, and about the role of a broader base of people to participate in that is really important. Thank you very, very much, Sonia, for joining us. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center. 